Recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, this is The Poetry Project. So I'm going to introduce Risa and the talk, and I will also introduce Jennifer. So I'm going to do bio introduction, and then after Risa's talk, there'll be a short performance. There'll be no break. Um, and then we're going to have a conversation um, with all of you. So that's the order of events. When I started reading Risa Puleo, I had this feeling of finally finding my dream of an art writer, somebody who troubles all terms, movements, categories, while devoting herself to the task of careful description, deeply getting to know the individual artist she focuses her writing and curatorial projects on. And perhaps you also know Risa for her reviews of shows and interviews. Just this fall, she's published an interview in Bomb with M. Lamar and a review of Wu Tsang's show in Modern Painters. Risa has also been researching and writing for three years in a project that explores, quote, Baroque conceptions of female monstrosity. This work connects to the contemporary on many levels, one of which is the question of how to narrate images reproduced so many times, images that continue to stare back at us while constantly accruing new meanings. It's rare to enter our contemporary moment through the lens of the 17th century, a time not unlike our own in its horrors of empire and enslavement, with figures who resisted the gender binary and other oppressive structures for assigning beauty and ability. How can we use the art historical images that Risa writes from to understand what is now visible and celebrated in mass culture? What is scandalized and marketed as sensational? How are these routines conditioned on habits of thinking that sometimes take a century or so to develop and to be understood? Going back 500 years in time to representations of people who defied medically assigned norms in early modern painting and defied how gender is visualized in part by, amount, by the amount of hair on one's body, Risa deconstructs images within their original context from colonial curiosity cabinets to gynecological manuals. The paintings she will discuss tonight are images that have caused unending controversy from what Risa eloquently argues resists the attempt to retrain bodies to exist within bounds of normalcy. The subjects of the images are heroes that wrestle with extremes of thought, rupturing binaries and preceding that which is revolutionary. The monstrous comes to speak of necessary crises in politics and social norms. I learned from Risa's epilogue um, of this project after her consultation with astrologer and artist Constantina Zavitsanos that incidentally, and this is Risa's words, the United States is due for a Plato return in 2022. I also learned from Risa that Pluto, the planet associated with freedom, takes 248 years to circle around the sun. Pluto's transit coincides with revolutions. I first met Risa at the event Talk Walk Sing that she curated two years ago as part of Visual Aid's Day Without Art in conjunction with a fierce pussy show, Let the Record Show. It was within the structure of an all-day event, an intergenerational group of artists and writers that provided a focus on conversation. So I'm thrilled to have with us tonight to be in conversation with Risa and you all, Jennifer Miller. And this is just, I'm gonna read a bio for Jennifer Miller. 
Jennifer Miller's work exudes an openness and awareness of context, whether that awareness is of large-scale political machinery at work or the ability to connect with an audience. Jennifer's body of work includes seven years in the Coney Island Sideshow and her Circus Amok Productions, a company she founded in 1989. Jennifer Miller inspires many students she teaches in performance at Pratt, where I have seen tremendous productions. This past year, they put on Das Vidanya Mama by Ethel Eichenberger. Circus Amok's shows are always free and in public parks in New York City. It stands alone as New York City's only no animal and queer circus. A sampling of Circus Amok's show titles sound like they could be a table of contents for a preferable history book of the last 25 years in New York City. Some of these show titles were The Ozone Show, Spies Are Us, The Survival Show, New York Under, Ground Under, Dollar Sign, Dollar Sign, Dollar Sign, Money Amok, Dollar Sign, Dollar Sign, Dollar Sign. Quality of Life, that was a two-year show, part one and two. The Medicine Show, the experimental walking tour, Home, Star, Land, Star, Security, Citizen, Star, Ship, and Subprime, Sublime. Circus Amok has addressed such, such pressing, pressing issues as affordable housing and stop and frisk through traditional circus skills like tightrope walking, juggling, acrobatics, acrobatics, stilt walking, clowning, combined with experimental dance, life-size puppetry, music, and gender-bending performance art. So without further ado, please welcome Risa Puleo. Um, thank you, Ariel, for that really generous um, and well-written introduction. I appreciate it. So tonight I'm going to be talking about monsters, and for me this story is far more frightening than you would think a talk on Friday the 13th would be about. But by 17th stand century standards, I am a monster in at least two or three different ways, and probably each of you in this room is a monster in some way or another. And when you hear what I mean by the word monster, you're going to call me hateful at the very least, and racist, misogynist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist, classics, classist, and xenophobic, all of the things, all at once. But I'm gonna keep using terms like this, monster, and also other words like dwarf and hermaphrodite, which are 17th century words, because as I unpack monstrosity, you'll see that if we use another word, we would be erasing an entire history about the ways that people have been collected as objects, and how their built bodies have been put on display to be looked at like objects. So in the 16th and 17th century, the word monster was used to describe a range of bodies that didn't fit neatly into categorical binaries based on standards on normativity. These standards were determined by an unspoken visual analysis of bodies and an inventory of shape, size, color, scale, and texture, and governed by measures of quality and quantity. So too much and too littleness. So for instance, this giant uh, is in possession of too much height, and the dwarf next to him is, uh, has too little height. Um, the insane lived between different realities, and some people like Vlad the Impaler, up at the top, uh, also known as Dracula, uh, were inhumanly cruel in ways that made them closer to animals. Uh, others transgressed boundaries of life and death, like Gregor Bacci, when he didn't die from a jousting tournament injury, 
shown with that lance between his eyes. Um, babies born with teeth or children whose intellects would not progress beyond a certain age were out of sync with time. Bodies of different skin tone confused color standards. And this person's legs are possibly too thin to support him. I also want to say that all of these people were real living people. And so these paintings are portraits, not imaginations. Hermaphrodites, which translates today to include intersex bodies, transgender bodies, and homosexual practices, contained a surplus of genitalia or sexuality. Conjoined twins had too many heads or arms or legs, but it's not only the way that they breached binary categories that makes a monster monstrous, but the ways in which the monstrous body is staged, as we've seen in the pictures, and also the type of looking that the monster is subjected to. Looking, in some cases, amplified to sensation and spectacle, and in other cases, focused on the minute details of the monster's body also characterizes this phenomenon. In this way, images allow us to look at the bon monster's body long after the monster has died and dissect it and diagnose their bodies visually. Images become another way to capture in this moment of colonial conquest. Um, I'm particularly interested in the way in bodies that are considered especially hairy because hair becomes the fulcrum around which one species in the spectrum between human and animal and gender in the spectrum between male and female is visually discerned. So I'm gonna go back to this image, um, which is from a gynecological manual from about 1650. Um, before I look at two painted portraits of monsters to show how their monstrosity is constructed via gynecology colonialism and collecting. Um, so this image behind me comes from a book written by Ambrose Paré, who was the doctor to King Henry II of France around 1650 or so onward. His book On Monsters and Marvels is, is an example of a wunderwerk, a genre of writing popular in the 16th century that was like an encyclopedia for wonders of nature. This book was a catalog of varied and unusual phenomenon. So, volcanoes and geysers and other things that like magically and spontaneously came out of the ground or things that fall from the sky like comets or asteroids or meteorites or things that look impossible to make like the great pyramids of Egypt or creatures that you only hear about um, if you ever rarely see them like a dragon or a unicorn or a mermaid who herself was a collision of fish and woman. Because Paré was a doctor, he was interested in birth anomalies in humans and animals, otherwise known as monsters. In this way, when I talk about monsters and monstrosity, what I'm talking about is the development of gynecology and obstetrics. Paré was particularly interested in the causes of monstrosity. He gave 13 causes for why a baby might deviate in form, most of which are attributed to the mother, including a narrow womb, or crossing your legs too tightly while pregnant could squish and misform your baby. Um, other non-maternal causes, including too much or too little seed, the interference of demons, and the glory or the wrath of God. These two behind me were created by the imagination of their parents. So <laughs> I'm gonna go into that now more. So Paré cites ancient sources like Hippocrates, as in 
the Hippocratic Oath, to explain that these two children were produced by mothers who in the moment of their conception gazed at an image that imprinted itself in their minds and resulted in a child that looked like the picture. In other words, what goes in your mind comes out your vagina. Um, <laughs> so the black child was produced when the mother looked at a portrait of a moor and the furry girl by an image of St. John the Baptist who's often shown dressed in animal skins and has a hairy body and beard. This explanation speaks to the power bestowed upon images to impregnate themselves in a mother's mind in a logic that conflates procreation with creativity, conception with mental conceptualization. Now, the purpose of this book is to display anomalies. And what's interesting to me about this image is that these two figures are unwilling to present themselves to, the, to be looked at. The furry girl hides herself behind her own hands. And the black boy, by the way he's depicted as kind of an ink spot, is virtually unseeable. But who is she hiding from? The reader of the book or the artist who drew her? Um, I argue that her self-concealing pose is the key to understanding this image. So her posture greatly resembles that of Venus Pudica, a traditional model for depicting nude women in Western sculpture and painting since ancient Greece and Rome. The Vetus Pudica's pose is meant to express modity, modesty about her nudity. Given that the word pudica derives from the Latin pudendus, which means both shame and genitalia. Um, the Venus Pudica served for the model for Eve, who hides her nudity with arms crossing her body in Masaccio's expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, which is in a church in Florence. In fact, the furry girl's image is a copy of Masaccio's Eve because this Medici, Venus de Medici is also in Florence, um, meaning that Masaccio had a lot of access to it. Uh, in the biblical story, after an Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge, the eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked. Masaccio depicts the couples coming into awareness by the, showing them attempting to conceal their nudity with a Venus Pudica's pose. The lesson of the biblical parable, parable is that nudity is inappropriate for socialized and acculturated humans and associated with the innocence and unawareness of animals. In this image from Peter Comastor's illustrated Bible, the Historica Scholastica, Adam and Eve are depicted in a stage between innocence and awareness. Both wear long coats made of swirling hair as they exit Eden, showing how the animal's fur morphed into human clothing. Returning to Paré's image, I argue that it's because the furry girl's animal-like furry body in combination uh, with a human awareness of her nudity is what makes her a monster. She is both human and animal. Paré would have been familiar with the Venus Pudica and Masaccio's Eve because he was patron to King Henry II who was married to Catherine de' Medici who came from Florence and these were in her family's collections. Paré writes, that, uh, Paré writes that when monsters are born with a form that is half human and half animal, they were produced by sodomites and atheists who join together and break out of their bounds, contrary to nature, with animals. And from this are born several monsters that are hideous and very scandalous to look at or speak about. These things that appear outside of the course of nature are usually signs of some forthcoming misfortune. And indeed, the word monster itself comes from the Latin monstrare, 
which means to show or point at. Think of the word demonstrate or demonstrate. So in ancient times, the birth of babies whose bodies deviated from normal form were thought of as ominous warnings of future misfortune. Because their prophecies would affect an entire community, monstrous births were considered a matter of state. By the 16th century, few believed the supernatural association of the monster and instead were fascinated by their bodies as signs of an infinitely creative God and interested in understanding in the ways that God's minds worked. Monsters would continue to be matters of state and religion, however, because in the 16th century, the outward appearance of your body governed the social and theological response to your soul. In other words, if a child who did not look human at birth or was born dead, would you baptize that child? Would it get a Christian burial? What about a child born covered in hair who resembled a dog or a monkey as much as a human? What about a baby born with two heads attached to one body? Would it get one or two names? How about a baby with one head and two bodies? Should a hermaphrodite be christened with a male or female name? These are all 16th century Catholic problems. Um, <laughs> uh, whereas Paré uses the images to illustrate ideas of monstrous births, others would use the same images for different reasons. So the naturalist Ulysses Aldrovandi, who was working in Bologna at the same time Paré was working in Paris, used the same image to develop a classification system and is today considered the forefather of biology, botany, and geology. Aldrovandi was indebted to Aristotle's great chain of being, a hierarchical system of classification that ranked all living things and inanimate objects, including heavenly and demonic beings, plants and rocks, according to a capacity for awareness. So you'll also notice that like flames are on there above stones because their ability to be animated. Um, from Aldovandi's perspective, the monster presented a problem to his classification system. Where do you put somebody who appears to be both human and animal? Like the furry girl. The monster could also exist in all categories and no categories, like coral, which seemed to be a plant, animal, and mineral all at once. Because of its inability to be categorized, it got its own category, the monstrous. Aldrovandi published the same image of the furry girl and the black child in his book, Monstrous Historium, with the caption that reads, Infants Athiopes and Virgo Viosa, which is a translation of the phrase furry girl and black child into Latin and binomial Latin uh, nomenclature, which is like homo sapien. He just translated furry girl and black child into that language. Um, but here we can see uh, how Aldervandi's version is a reversal of Paré's, meaning that he copied an illustration and then it flipped when it was reprinted. Um, but so far I've been talking about the, black, the furry, furry girl, but how is the black child in the image possessing the normative shape, size, and scale of a human child an example of a monster? Aldrovandi would classify it as another species, and Paré would argue that it has a case of reverse albinoism. The image is a succinct example of two ancient ideas, monstrous births and monstrous races, coalescing into the general idea of the monster in the mid-16th century, where the furry girl represents the idea of monstrous births and reveals attitudes towards deformity and disability in the Baroque period, 
The black child represents the equally ancient idea of monstrous races and assumptions made about foreign people. The response to and governance born of those born able-bodied and human, and yet appearing unusual, primitive, and animal-like to Europeans in newly encountered places across the grove, globe was directed by the idea of monstrous races. In other words, monstrous births account for difference within your social group, and monstrous races account for differences outside of your social group. Um, and there was also a set of questions that about monstrous races that affected everybody on like kind of basic fundamental levels. So like when you're encountering somebody from the Americas or the New World, you have this question of like, can I have sex with this person? And if I do have sex with somebody who appears to be a different species, will I be making a monster? Um, a variety of humanoid creatures were believe, believed to reside at the farthest corners of the earth by ancient thinkers like Herodotus and Pliny and included <laughs> included in this list are the dog-headed uh, cynocephalus, the cyopod that has these really great feet that like uh, shade him like a tree, um, and the blimeys whose faces were positioned on their chests and their headless bodies. But the blimeys were also an actual tribe of people that were living in the Sudan, and this also promulgated notions of the imaginary monstrous blimeys. Um, the people of the New World were believed to be living examples of some of these creatures. Thus, when conquistadors and explorers began colonizing in the Americas at the beginning of the 16th century, they named whole regions for monstrous races of warrior women, like the Amazons, or big-footed giants, like Patagonia, and consumers of human flesh, which is what the Caribbean is named for. Um, in an earlier generation of Paré's image from Pierre Busto's uh, Prodigus Histories, the unusual couple was placed in the context of a royal court. And in fact, um, King Henry II owned a hairy boy named Pedro Gonzalez, who was gifted to him by, most likely from the Spanish king, uh, Carlos V, because Gonzalez came from the Spanish-occupied um, Canary Islands only three years before this image was printed. Uh, Pedro was taught to speak Latin because a Latin-speaking wild man was more of an oddity and emphasized the contrast between savagery and enculturation, wild and tame, and the collision of opposite categories that define the monster. On royal occasions, Pedro was dressed in scholar's robe, as he's shown here, and placed in a cave, constructed to look like an image of what his home on the Canary Islands was supposed to look like. This was one of many amusements that would take place in King Henry's court. The royal family would also stage dwarf-scaled jousting tournaments. Because why not? Um, indigenous people from Spanish colonies, like Gonzalez, were often brought to Spanish court for the king's amusement and education. Uh, Christoph Weiditz illustrated Aztecs performing in the court of King Charles V in 1530. The text accompanying this image describes not only the costume, but the appearance, actions, and behaviors, and describes the Aztecs as curious and marvelous, which were the same terms that were used to describe those born in Europe with anomalous bodies. Many of these exotic visitors to royal courts, both 
European and foreign, would enter into the king's entourage and rep be represented in court portraiture. Collecting people as objects of curiosity and trophies, representing the scope of one's territory, has been a hobby of the earliest empires, but documenting one's collection of people reached new heights in the late 15th century Florence, which is how we get to how museology and the history of collecting plays a part in the construction of monstrosity. Um, this is Morgante, one of the five dwarves that lived at the Medici Palace in Florence, and he was the famous favorite of Cosimo de' Medici, as uh, shown by the number of representations of Morgante in that collection. So here we see a painting by Bronzino, which is a double-sided painting, and it shows him from the front and the back for the purposes of being able to really study his anatomy at length. And then this is also a fountain in the Palazzo Pizzi's garden, which shows Morgante sitting above a turtle. And it's trying to emphasize that his height is the same as his width and his thickness. And also the way that Morgante's penis like kind of peeks out underneath his belly is supposed to echo the way that that turtle's head peeks out of that shell. These portraits that I showed you earlier all came from one collection, that of Ferdinand, the Holy Roman Empire Ferdinand II, who had a castle in Innsbruck, Austria. Um, he was related to Catherine de' Medici by marriage, and he and his cousins, including the Archduke Maximilian of Austria, the Duke of Bavaria, William V, King of Hungary and Croatia, Rudolf II, were all Habsburgs related to each other and all created miniature worlds that expressed their power to obtain. And they positioned themselves as godlike creators of their room-sized dominions and filled, the, uh, filled them with objects that expressed the breadth of their power. Their cabinets of curiosity were filled with assemblages of coral and pearls reconfigured into alien landscape scenes, games from across the world carved in ivory, precious stones and gems, intricate automatons with elaborate moving parts, and a series of paintings such as these as the physically, of the physically and psychologically anonymous. Um, this dwarf, Tamel, was also the same dwarf who jumped out of William V's wedding cake at his marriage celebration. Now, here I'm going to take... Uh, little bit of a segue and start talking about two portraits. This is Antoinette Gonzalez. She's the daughter of Pedro Gonzalez, the hairy man in the cave at King Henry's court. And after King Henry dies, representations of the Gonzalez family begin appearing across Europe as they move from Habsburg Palace to Habsburg Palace. She's always shown wearing a flower crown and a brocade dress. You can see her image changes very little. These are uh, both images from Aldrovandi's Monstrous Historium because she was also examined by Aldrovandi. Um, and here you can see she now has this new letter in her hands. And she's painted by the artist Lavinia Fontana in Bologna and this most skilled of the portraits of her. Remember when I mentioned earlier that Parr and others theorizes caused of causes of deviate form in the procreative process, believing that an image of the mother, the image that the mother was looking at, impregnated in itself in its mind, well, this spawned a market for 
pictures of beautiful children that would hang around conjugal beds. And Lavinia Fontana was particularly famous for these pictures. Um, in her portrait of Antoinette Gonzalez, she shows her with a flower crown again, and this lily of the valley that peeks out from behind her ear, which is a way to connect her body again to the wildness of nature. But the lily of the valley isn't a flower of North, from northern Italy where she lived. Instead, it only really appears in northern Europe, as seen in Durer's Madonna with a Siskin, where the young John the Baptist hands a lily of the valley to the Virgin Mary, who owned this painting, the Madonna with a Siskin, the same Habsburg ruler, Ferdinand II, who also commissioned paintings of Antoinette Gonzalez. So there's this purposeful way in which they're reconnecting her body again through John the Baptist to reinforce this theory of conception. Lavinia Fontana was also very well known for paintings of the gentle ladies of Bologna with their dogs. In particular, the ladies of Bologna were importing dogs from the Canary Islands, where Pedro Gonzalez was originally from. The name Canary Islands is also a mistranslation from the Spanish, which already originally meant the island of the dogs, and is believed to be a mythological home of the Cynocephali, the dog-headed people described by Pliny. So in this way, Antoinette Gonzalez is painted by Lavinia Fontana, embodies all of these both colonial and gynecological ideas. In the 17th century, Habsburg, Spanish Habsburgs came to the fore as collectors of people. And like his great-great-grandfather, Charles V, 100 years before him, Philip IV would also bring people from the Americas to his court for viewing. This is Catalina de Rosso. Where Antoinette Gonzalez breached categories of human and animal, Catalina de Rosso breached categories of male and female. She was a Basque nun who escaped the convent, dressed as a man for 15 years, lived in the Americas as a soldier and a conquistador, working towards taming the wildness of the American people. She lived her life as a man, and by man, I mean a scoundrel. She stole from everybody who tried to help her. She seduced all of her boss's daughters, and she killed her best friends in fights. In this way, she was the embodiment of military masculinity at the time. And I want you to take note of this color, because we'll see it again, um, but it's a sign of her status as a soldier. At both the Spanish and the papal courts, those who viewed her were particularly interested in taking note of her facial hair and her breasts. But you can see how the thickness of the seam of her garment um, shows how thick her garments are, kind of, that would work as a way to conceal her. Um, also notice that she's kind of cockeyed, which would be an indicator of her internal incongruence. So to escape charges of murder, she turned herself into the convent, reclaimed her status as a woman and a nun, and testified to her virginity, and submitted herself to the inspections that would prove it. Because she was a nun, she was subject to God's law and not human law, and so she waited for a verdict from the Pope in Rome. In the meantime, her story traveled back to Europe, and she became incredibly famous, and then she eventually followed it there. Um, I think it's because Arauso was judged by King Philip's court, 
filled with dwarves who attended to the king, madmen acting as gestures, and eunuchs castrated to preserve their singing voices, that she was celebrated and not condemned, as others were for the same crimes. Here we see King Philip using one of his dwarves to rest his hand. Um, the juxtaposition of tall and short bodies here reinforces the scale of the king's power compared to those he rules. Here, another dwarf is shown dressed as a soldier, identifiable again by that collar. Those accused of monstrously crossing the boundaries between male and female were often soldiers and nuns, social groups isolated by sex, living in a remove from the everyday world. Catalina de Arauso was both. Many soldiers accused of sodomy often admitted that their first encounters happened in the military. As a site of sex-based isolation, the military was occupied with a particular brand of masculine men performing in warring and conquering roles. And since virility was a defining attribute of this kind of masculinity, one can conclude that when isolated, these men would exercise their virility on each other. It's like all the reasons people were concerned about gays in the military. Um, thus, one reason why Arouse's virginity, confirmed by a doctor, two midwives and a surgeon, was important was that it testified to the fact that she had not been penetrated by her fellow soldiers, thus protecting the chastity of her female body and her status as a nun. But her virginity didn't prove that she had not penetrated another body. Lots of nuns wrote about special friendships in the convent. St. Teresa, um, of Avila, encouraged secrecy to avoid scandals and inciting more passion and desire through suggestion. She thought affections between nuns were initiated by the devil so as to create factions within the religious order, suggesting that the danger of special friendships in the convent was not the sin of sex among women, but favoritism in a communal environment. In, in Arouse's time, biological sex was an unstable category. An assortment of related concepts were used to explain masculinity housed within a female body, including the spontaneous transmutation of genitalia, an idea of homosexuality understood through sodomy, um, sod sodomical actions, hermaphroditism, witchcraft, and fraud all fell under the umbrella of possible causes between discordance between gender and sex. In Arouse's time, there are also a few cases of nuns who spontaneously grow penises, often after lifting something heavy on a hot day at the convent. And the physical <laughs> exertion would push out a hidden penis. That sounds like a really great porn. <laughs> there were also cases of women like Arouse dressed as men who became soldiers. Often these women would use theories of hidden hermaphrodism that they would spontaneously push out a penis to defend themselves. But taking a closer look at some of these cases suggests something more complicated about the way race and gender intersect. So Estebania de Valdecetre, and there are no pictures of these women I'm gonna talk about, and Elena de Cespedes were also born female in the late 16th century and like Arauso, lived their lives not only as men, but as soldiers. Valderosete was brought to Granada for examination by midwives because authorities did not accept that a woman could perform cosas tan heroicas, or brave deeds. 
The examination proved inconclusive, and Estebania was commanded to choose the habit in which she wanted to live, and she chose to be male. Estebania became Esteban, married a woman, and opened a fencing school in Granada. Her sex transmutation was accepted by Spanish society based on her brave deeds, physical strength, and her ability to use weapons, which were all valued as part of a warrior ethos in the early ages of empire. She was Spanish. Elena de Cespedes argued, also argued that she was a hidden hermaphrodite. She made the case that she pushed out her hidden penis while pushing out her child, though vaginal prolapse is perhaps a better way to understand the changes in her body. Um, but where Valderosete, a Spaniard, defense was successful, Cespedes, who was a morisco and a freed slave, was sentenced to 10 years exile. Cespedes was also examined by a cadre of midwives and doctors. These examiners were unable to reach consensus about the presentation of her genitalia, and the disagreement hinged on whether she had a large clitoris or a small penis. Cespedes' defense also emphasized her position as a soldier, especially how she aided Spain in repressing the uprising of the Moriscos, i.e. the Moors from North Africa or her own people, though she identified herself as a Christian. She was linked to invading bandits and seen as a threat to the Spanish Empire. She was believed to come from exotic lands near India and Ethiopia, populated by fantastic beasts and hermaphrodites. Her knowledge of her medicine was proof of her witchcraft, and since moriscos were already associated with sodomy, her evasive genitalia was further proof of her sins against nature. Her dark skin proved that she was not Spanish, while her uncategorizable genitalia was proof that she was not a man. Arauso made a different case. She admitted to her womanhood and solicited the examinations that would prove it. As a boss, she already occupied a liminal space in Spanish society. She was of the Iberian Peninsula, but was also distinct from the Spanish in culture and language. So since she was both of and not of Spain, her gender sex discordance could be attributed to her Basqueness and her Cosestan Jorocas, her brave deeds, to her Spanishness, her irascible anti-authoritarian anti tendencies, and her inability, as well as lack of desire, to follow the rules, including those pertaining to sex and gender, were all evidence of her indefatigable Basque nature. I'm going to end here, but my research continues beyond these two portraits. I've also found a portrait of a woman who challenged categories of both animal and human and male and female simultaneously, further complicating the ideas of gender at the intersection with race and disability. I've also found portraits of three royals who were considered monstrous by their own terms. There's a lot to learn from this moment in time. If we think about collections of people from the state, by the state, then maybe we can reconceptualize prisons and jails differently, also as collections of people kept by the state. This moment is time, in time is foundational to a lot of the log logic that our society runs on, but only when we look back at an earlier moment when it seems exaggerated by present-day circumstances can we see it. Just as the early modern monster had parents in gynecology, colonialism, and museology, it also has offspring. Disability studies, critical animal studies, post-humanist theory, 
critical race studies, queer and transgender theory, contemporary monster theory, tabloid journalism, natural history, art, and medical museums, freak shows, human zoos, and reproductive technology, including in vitro fertilization and any eugenics projects are some of the legacies of this conversation. And on that note, I'm very happy to turn it over to Jennifer Miller, who's going to continue the conversation with a performance. So I, I got this invitation from Ariel to come and, and be in conversation with Risa. And um, I'm not uh, a scholar of Baroque art. So I thought, oh, what am I, what am I doing? What am I going to talk about there? Um, what do I have to do with this? So, uh, um, but I do have some, some experience in contemporary, uh, the contemporary display of the monstrosity in my, my work in the sideshow. So to introduce that, I th what I, what, this is so hot, isn't it, this microphone? Um, I thought what I would do is, is um, give a little voice to the mute hirsute uh, that we've been just hearing about and, 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 and looking at. So, um, so, uh, so I'm going to bring forth uh, my um, act that I did in the sideshow. So this is, this is a sort of a, a contemporizing of, of, of how these creatures um, are displayed in the late 20th century, which is when I did this work. So I'll give you a little introduction to my sideshow act, and then I'll do it. And then we will sit, we'll, we will continue conversation. So if you thought that last act was something, what you're about to see is something else. That's right, we got a, uh, the bearded lady's coming up now. Yeah, she's a real lady. Yeah, she's a, yeah, it's a real beard. No, she's not my wife. <laughs> Are you ready, Zenobia? Yes, I, I'm ready. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, please give a warm welcome to the bearded lady, Zenobia. Thank you very much. My name is Zenobia for today anyway, and I am a woman with a beard. Ouch, not a metaphor. Now you notice I'm calling myself a woman with a beard, not the bearded lady. Why is that? Does anybody have any idea? All right, I'll tell you. If I called myself the bearded lady, I would be saying that I, Zenobia for today anyway, was the one, was the only woman with a beard in the entire world. The bearded lady, could that possibly be true? A resounding no from the brilliant fr Friday night crowd. Of course it's not true. The world is full of women who have beards, right? Yes. Or at least the potential, the potential to have a beard if they would just reach out and fulfill their fabulous potential, as I myself have done, instead of wasting the time, the money, the energy, on the waxing, on the shaving, on the electrolysis, on the plucking. Okay, okay. Let's, well, I'll be honest with you right here now. Anyway, some of my best friends pluck. It's okay. I let them into my home. I let them into my heart. I'll, I'll tell you, a little pluck here, a little pluck there, fine. But the next thing you know, you got pluck, 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 pluck. You're on a roll. You can't stop. Pluck, 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 as if these women were, I'm not judging anybody. In fact, I've been working the brows myself a bit of late. 
Historically, hair is a symbol of power and a lot of other things that we learned about tonight. Hair is a symbol of power. You got hair for men. They can't stand to be without a strand. You can say I made this act up a long time ago. I haven't changed a thing. Hair club for men. What the fuck is that? They can't stand to be without a strand. Goes all the way back to Samson. His big mane of power. Hair is a symbol for power. That is why the men do not want the women having too much in too many places. Do you get it? Forget about it. People want to know how I deal on the street. Here I am, gal with beard, prancing around the streets of New York. <laughs> Trying to have a life. You think I get hassled out there in the streets? I'm not talking about my prancing, yes. The beard. I get my fair share. What do I do? How do I cope out there? I do the usual. I talk, I cajole, I argue, I educate, I chit-chat, I ignore, I run, I... It's been a long, hard day at work. I'm hot. I'm tired. Forget the talking. Forget the cajoling. All I want is a nice, cold machete, baby. And when the machetes come out, well, these days, you know, they can get married in all 50 states. They can have a talk show. Like when the machetes come out, wah, wah. All right, right now I'm going to give you folks, sorry, you, you folks an example of what happens.
the mute hair suit speaks. Wow. So thank you, Jennifer, and thank you, Risa, so much for You're sharing welcome. your work. I feel so lucky to be here and to be sitting in between both of you. Um, so I'm just going to kick it off with a question that came to mind um, throughout the past few weeks and months, thinking about both of your work in this event. Um, and I'm curious how you employ subversion, uh, respectively, within art historical scholarly work, Risa, and within your work in the sideshow, uh, Jennifer. So I just, I, both of you seem to be really um, trying to challenge narratives that are dominant in some ways and in lots of ways and pervade our culture and, um, yeah, subversion. Whoever wants to jump in, yeah. Um, our art history is a pretty conservative discipline, and especially 17th century Spanish Baroque art history, um, which has looked at all of these pictures, and there's actually surprisingly little to say about them. Um, and I was really interested in hearing what the stories of these women were outside of you know, the sort of paragraph that occurs within the Prado's exhibition catalog. Um, and to do that, I had to go through gynecology to find what their stories were because nothing else was written about them. And I think what was really interesting to me was how there's tons written about all of the women that I write about who challenge binaries of masculinity and femininity and usually because they tend to be more masculine. But then the women who um, challenge binaries of animal and human, there's nothing written about them because they tend to be couched under femininity and animality. So their voices are even more mute. Um, but then these masculine women are like hyperverbal. Um, that was just something else that I noticed. I don't know if I answered your question either. Um, this act that I did is, is, the is the act that I created and performed in the Coney Island Circus Sideshow for many years. And when I, when I first took it out, I would sort of deconstruct it and do this and that with it. That was a very interesting thought process for me about changing the form when I went out of the Sideshow. I, but it, it, it grew a little bit since then. So, it, so, so doing this act in the Sideshow was, you know, my direct, um, mechanism to, to be subversive within the sideshow, which was to, to talk about the bearded lady as a, as a construction from the very first sentence when I say I'm Zenobia for today, for today anyway. Um, and then to continue to break it down. Of course, traditional sideshow performers did that in their own way. They were always saying, I'm here, um, you know, half man, half woman, or uh, no, not half man, they actually didn't give that pitch, or maybe they, but, 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 you know, no legs, half, half, half a body, and I'm married to the tallest man in the world, and our, we have a daughter, and she goes to Columbia, and she's a happily married heterosexual. So they were always, you know, they always actually worked to, 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 to claim this space in the, in the, in the, um, 
place of normalcy, which in a way, maybe I'm doing, maybe I'm calling this thing subverting, which, which is actually doing the very traditional thing. But I do turn the gaze back on the audience and I do talk about this creation of this monstrosity as a choice and so move it away from the mythologies of the, of the uh, you know, what, what phase the moon was in or who was looking down from the bed. So that's, that's one way. Also in the work of Circus Amok, which tours the park, I play the ringmaster. So there we take the, the freak characters and take them from the sideshow and put them into the center as the interlocutor, who's actually the character that uh, brings the audience into the, into the magical world of the circus. Um, I have lots of questions, but I just also want to say at any point, if anybody wants to jump in from the audience and ask any questions and join the conversation, um, Please do so. So I want to open it up immediately also for questions for Risa and for Jennifer. I'm afraid that I might be one of those people that makes a comment instead of asking a question. So I'm just going to preface this. But there was like a there was a moment in your performance that I, you know, when I realized that you were pretending to be fumbling the knives, but I really bought it at first. And it made me really think so much about like that. Um, it's hard for or people, I think that if you tend to be monstrous in some kind of way, maybe don't want to trust you right away because mm. there, it seems like there's some kind of like that you're trying to trick them or that you're, you know, in, in some way, and especially with gender stuff. And it was really making me think about that. And I think the moment I realized that you were doing that on purpose, I'm like, oh yeah, the failure is about like actually uh, breaking down the audience a little bit, you know, with their safety, which I thought was really beautiful. So. I mean, I come at it from a from a purely vaudevillian place. Like, I'm gonna get a better applause if I make it look like I can't do it first. But I'm sure these two things are totally intertwined. Well, Jennifer, the moment that that happened for me is when you tugged your beard, because even in the 16th century, there's a case of an all hairy woman. She had a hairy face and hairy body, and um, part you could pay more to tug on the hair in different parts of her body as part of like the proof of the veracity of her body. And hermaphrodites were also considered um, deceptive or fugitive, as is the case with Elena de Cespedes, who couldn't pass as a man because of her race, or uh, Estebania Valdesarete, who did. So this question of like the truth of our bodies and, is and, something and there. And then there are those places where the, the people want to to pull on the beard to because we think it's a gaffe so that the the people who, who aren't born freaks are dressing up as born freaks to make a buck. So we're proving from both sides that it's real. Yes, it's you're a real monster. Yes, you're and there's also this idea that not only the monster's trying to get over on us, but the show business people are trying to get over us. Marissa. Thanks. Thanks, Jennifer. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask um, if any of the subjects that you ta talked about, Risa, owned their difference at the time, like were able to make choices about how they lived, um, where they weren't being examined or judged. Um, Katarina de Rosso 
makes a claim that she's worked for the Spanish crown for 20 years as a soldier, so she should get a pension like any other soldier would. And she lives in Spain and Rome, and she enjoys her celebrity to a certain extent. She gets that portrait painted. There's also a really popular play that comes out. I also want to say that between the years 1590 and 1670, there are like 300 plays of, of butches or hairy women. They're incredibly popular subject matter at this particular moment and highly visible. Um, so she's really famous. And she's so famous that she gets tired of it and she takes her pension. She moves back to Mexico, not Peru, but Mexico. Well, it's not New Spain. Um, and buys a farm and becomes a mule driver and lives the rest of her life. Retired. Yeah. She's retired. From I, I also wanted to say, Je Jennifer, that I never told you this, but like maybe 10 years ago when I was in Berlin, I went to a museum and it was in a renovated um, something station. And it was, it was very old in there and then I went to the gift shop and lo and behold, there was a postcard of you posed as Mar Marilyn Monroe. And I was like, Jennifer Miller, here, in this place, wow, you know. That's a Zoe, uh, Zoe Leonard photo, and she, um, in, the Maryland, in the Maryland pose, she did a lot of work in uh, uh, medical museums. So she has photos that, that, that you might be interested in if you go, how, I don't know how long you're gonna stay with this arena of work and take it, it's go to the contemporary now, but a lot of photos, she has photos of hell, hair, hair heads in bell jars, hairy women's heads in bell jars, and all kinds of other physical anomalies as uh, displayed in the medical world, which of course um, go all, go all go going all the back way back to gynecology and up to pretty contemporary moment. Yeah, those, pho th those, pho those photos of, of, of the hairy monsters are, st are, st are still out there. Hi, Kay. Risa. <laughs> no, I, I want to thank you both for for this. It's very um, um, it's great for me. I, I'm doing a long-term project on on witches um, in the fairy tale, and the thing that I think is really interesting about what you're bringing in your work that is um, consonant with my work too is that. I think I think the thing that's really interesting is that there's a lot more range and a lot more intimacy with the anomalous in the historical literature than we really take account of. It's really the enlightenment that to a certain extent, you know, rationality, once rationality really becomes significantly, you know, sort of uh, th the thing that we're all to believe is the answer, you know, a lot of the familiarity with the anomalous goes away. So, I mean, I was really amazed at a number of the portraits that you showed, that the level of kind of what you could tell at court, I mean, at court, that whole idea of staging the anomalous was also, of course, a way of contrasting hierarchies. You know, and that's, and that's I think, the answer that we like to give to most things. It's, it's what we've been taught in our queer theory and our, you know, 
and our feminist theory. But I think there are. I, I think there's a whole other side to it that that you really uh, that you really have a, an incredible handle on, and that is that there really is a more you know sort of wide ranging understanding of the anomalous that's part of our human history that kind of gets you know dislodged once uh, once we become increasingly scientific. I was in Europe um, this winter studying, getting looking at these portraits in person, and there was this moment when I was at a castle looking at like you know the the history of the Spanish Empire as seen through portraits of their king and so all these kings lining the wall, and then also knowing that the history of Spain's empire died out because they were so inbred. Um, and then I had this kind of realization that like all of these portraits lining the walls in the castle were about successful breeding projects. Um, and this was the sort of desired result to breed royalty. And that and their other collections, their Wunderkammers and their own personal collections, all of these other portraits existed and were maybe thought of as like the pathology to the genealogy right. product or project, um, so that there was these literally like two lines of portraits that mirrored each other. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also that, you know, you're working on high culture, right? You know, But also like but low culture, because I mean, these gynecology. Well, I, I, I'm just saying yeah. that, you know, uh, I think the folk literature, the folk tale and the fairy tale give us more access mm -hmm. to, you know, sort of common interpretations of of the monster as, you know, in, in various in various figures. Mm -hmm. So it's a good idea for us to all start, you know, sort of looking at some of this stuff across across disciplinary boundaries. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else have questions? You s you don't have to use the mic if you speak really loud. That would okay. be great. <laughs> but it's I love it's microphones. I, I can pick up this lull to just, um, I had a question that I put in my introduction that came up a lot in conversation between us. Um, and I, it is, I'll just read it again. How can we use the art historical images that Risa writes from to understand what is now visible and celebrated in mass culture? So like just asking both of you about that moment of like, um, you know, we are, in the 21st century and there is, we're having a moment of trans visibility um, and thinking about like the, how visibility is a vexed thing. Like it's not, it's not always um, positive, right? And the, and the visibility and the popularity of the paintings that you talk about um, weren't, weren't always, um, you know, honoring the people. And in fact, that they, they weren't a lot of times, most of the time. Um, so I'm just, interested in, in having that moment of bridging the work and thinking about visibility in general. And, and that seems to me a major theme. Well, that's also the place that I started from, was thinking about the visibilities of bodies now. And this moment that I look at in the 17th century, like I mentioned, there was 300 plays written about hairy or butch women in, in less than 100 years. So it was also this like highly visible monster as a corollary to more than transgender today. 
um, moment, uh, and I wanted to go back in time to understand today in a new way. Like, um, when I was reading this project, I was kind of constantly frustrated by the way that contemporary historians were always trying to project backwards, like project um, maybe like transgender theory back on this time and like make claims that all of these 300 women in these plays are transgender or something like that. And I was like, actually there's kind of much, something much more complicated than that. And like what would happen if we moved like these much more nuanced ideas of what are happening with these bodies like forward, which I mentioned in my conclusion, like, okay, well, all of these people were collected, collected in by the king of Spain. You know, what kinds of collections of people exist today? And I was like, well, jails and prisons, those are collections by the state. Um, so that is something that I see as like a, another sort of one-to-one -one corollary. That when you project contemporary ideology backwards to only look for transgender people in the history, that you don't make these sort of other kinds of connections. So I'm interested in moving monstrosity forward. The vis visibility is such a huge lens. We're taking place in so many arenas. Visibility on the street, how is that different? Visibility in the media. Visibility at these parties that I still work every now. Okay, I just have to say, I worked a party. This was a while ago. <laughs> this was maybe, maybe seven years ago, but I did work a party where there was a guy, a really, really rich guy, really rich party up there somewhere, up north, uptown, upstate, somewhere. Anyway, there's a guy, uh, they so still hire freaks to go to parties, to rich people's parties, and, th and they had hired a, a, a short guy to dress exactly like the tall guy and to, to, to trail him all day. So he was, it was his birthday and he was going around and like the little guy stood next to the big guy while he was getting sung happy birthday and the little guy went with the big guy to go empty, you know, open the packages and, you know, images that are so, still kind of exactly like some of these things. So while visibility has changed in many ways in hidden pockets and not so hidden pockets, we still have a lot of uh, this same kind of um, collection and display going on. Well, I am also going to bring, I was writing this uh, this summer when Caitlyn Jenner appeared on Vanity Fair and the ways in which her body was sort of picked apart as um, as you know, beautiful or perfect, or you know, like what about her was female or woman, and held up to this sort of dissection standard, um, is the same way that I was talking about monstrosity. And she's like somebody who's hyper visible, maybe even overexposed, and I think that that's really what characterizes the monster body, monstrous body, like the way that your image gets reproduced that you like no longer kind of even own your, the way that your body is looked at. And in a way I think that there's, to a certain extent, we like want, celebrities want that as part of what their celebrity is, to be overexposed. Yeah, we talked a little bit the other day about, about different kinds of exposure in the media and I, I was interested in this moment when Transparent and last year's American Horror Story which was set in um, the sideshow came out. So this was a moment when two 
sort of underground cultures that I had been deeply involved in got represented in the mainstream media. And that was really interesting to look at because transparent uh, kind of presumes this naturalistic style. And um, American Horror Story, set in Chacho, is really stylized and very grotesque and, and celebrates its monstrousness. And I felt much, uh, much more at ease in the world of American Horror Story you know, and seeing the supposedly naturalistic, realistic representation of trans and trans community and the queer kids and in LA and the Jewish kids and a lot of things that I knew about. It really, really freaked me out, this idea that, that, that f we're, we're finally getting represented. Of course, it doesn't feel good at all. It feels limited. I mean, in some ways, it's exuberant. But, but that idea, and, 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 I, and I felt for how mainstream America has had to see its own supposed representations on television and how oppressive um, naturalism and realism is in, in uh, this kind of landscape of what it means to be visible in terms of how we're reflected back, being visible only through the mirror. No conclusion, just a little piece. Any other questions from the audience? I wasn't yet bearded when I started to perform. I wasn't yet bearded when I started. So, so, I, so that just becomes a very, I think that you're probably not interested then in that answer. <laughs> it was like any other, you know, like anybody else. I started to perform as a clown. I guess that's something, I mean that, that is how I, and, and it, you know. No, I didn't have a beard uh, before I started from. So then, what happened when my beard grew in? Um, I was in down. I was a da downtown New York dancer. So I came to New York. I said, and and I just let it grow in, and I was working with um, in the improv scene in the contact dance world, and that was okay. And I was working with Johanna Boyce, a great feminist, uh, just choreographer who had five or six good years here who left. And she made a duet for me and my partner at the time, Susan Sizer. And in that duet, I talked about the beard growing in and we talked about all that. That was a DTW. So that kind of opened up that topic. But it was not until I went to work at the Sideshow several years later and came back into that scene that people started to feel really comfortable asking me about it. So it had been very un unaddressed in my community, my community of dancers and theater makers. Um, but then once they knew that I was owning that title, that they, that they could ask about it in that arena. As probably, as maybe is happening tonight. Any other questions? There's one more, okay.
Oh, the her the sleeping hermaphroditus um, was found. <laughs> The sleeping hermaphroditus was found in 1607, so concurrent with this time that I'm writing about. And it's an ancient sculpture, but then Bernini, you know, being awesome and ingenious, like then carved this like tufted mattress out of marble. So it looks like it's on this like pillow. And then there's that great, like the way that the Uffizi displays it is the same way that the original owners, which were the Farnese's, um, displayed it, which was like the big reveal happens when you walk into the room and then you're like, oh my God, she has a penis and some breasts and it's a hermaphrodite. And um, hermaphrodites, I, I don't, I haven't figured this out yet. If like hermaphrodite, monstrosity is like this dominant metaphor in the 17th century, but hermaphrodites are equally prevalent. They're kind of like the uber monster of the 17th century. So everything is hermaphroditic and the hermaphrodite's body becomes like a metaphor for all sorts of political unrest that's happening at this time. Um, because the hermaphrodite is like male and female in one body, so it represents like the union of these two things that are held as opposites, whether that's considered unnatural or uh, resolution. So the hermaphrodite is seen as both like the problem and the solution. So. I'm wondering if the hermaphrodite is especially prominent at this moment because the sleeping hermaphroditus is found at the in like 1605. But um, you know, like the Medici's and the Habsburgs, we're collectors of both people and portraits of monstrosity, like ancient Rome, um, like emperor, ancient Roman emperors, also were collectors of people and like deformed slaves were special like special prizes to have so there was like this market for deformed slaves in ancient Rome as well um, and all of these ideas of monstrosity are really old like they're coming from like Aristotle and Hippocrates and Damascene and Pliny and um, like as I mentioned to Elizabeth like just being regurgitated did I answer your question? Thanks. Um, uh, er Ariel mentioned uh, that my conclusion to this whole project ends with me consulting an astrologer, <laughs> which is a Renaissance methodology, so completely within keeping <laughs> with the boundaries of the project. <laughs> um, because I begin to have this theory, like as I was working on this project, that like I was saying, like why are there so many plays about hairy women and butches and hermaphrodites all happening within a hundred year period? And why is there so much visibility now? And like what is the similarities now and then astrologically? <laughs> it's more than Pluto. <laughs> it's the intersection of Pluto and Neptune set against the age of Pisces as it transitions into Aquarius. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> I have this theory that others, like Foucault, have that monsters are especially visible at the end of empire. So, what happens, um, the Spanish empire falls apart in 
1700 because King Philip has a son. They're so inbred that his son can't reproduce. Um, so this is the moment when, like, what I was saying about genealogy and pathology, like, they become the same thing in, in Charles II's body. And they lose, the Spanish Habsburgs die out, and then after this, um, the Austrian Habsburgs come in to take over. So by that time, the Spanish Empire is, like, over. Like, all of the glory and wealth of Spain, they've, like, raped and pillaged the Americas. They have inbred themselves to death and they lose their country to their cousins. So monsters are especially visible at the end of empire. So what I was looking for <laughs> was a date when capitalism was gonna end and maybe it's gonna be in 2037. <laughs> I think that's a really good note to end on. The Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org.